right. A seamless transition. You all, I'm very, I have to say, I'm very proud of myself because for those of you who've been listening, you know, this new me trying to do all of it at one time doesn't work. So here we are. And for those of you on the podcast, you never even know that it messes up. So I think that's super cool because you are simply just hearing what I edit. So nonetheless, here we are, you all, for episode number, this is unbelievable, uh, 79. And I cannot wait for you to hear uh, from this returning guest in just a moment. Um, I can't wait to have a conversation uh, with her. We've it's been it's been a long time. But before we get to the guest, I do have to share a few things with you. One, I am super sorry I'm gonna use a mountain biking term. I haven't used this in a long time. I'm super stoked about <laughs> something that's coming up here shortly. Um I had this idea of of the Trauma Informed Educator Educators Network of becoming a hub, which it has been for it's thirty one thousand people in our group now and there's people from literally all over the world. But it wasn't enough. There's a ton of interactions every month on social media. I wanted to get people together virtually. I want people to see each other's faces. I want each other to get into small groups and connect. I want people to get into small groups and say, this is what I'm struggling with. Are you all too? And let's come up with some solutions, right, of how we can sustain this work given in many of the environments we're in. So we launched the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Global Gathering which is going to start March 14th, Tuesdays. It's going to happen on the second Tuesday of every month from 6 to 7. And it literally is just going to be a virtual get-together. It's going to be gathering. Um, We may have a topic of discussion. We may simply have a prompt and put people into uh, small groups and then come back as a big group and share. It's going to be just a time for us to connect. It doesn't matter if you're uh, the other side of the world. Um, if you want to join, please do. You can go to www.tiennetwork.org. Go over to uh, resources and go down to um, Global Gathering. Click it. You'll see a link at the bottom of the page. Just register. Um, there is no cost. Um, that that registration is simply just giving us your email so we can send out the invite. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I accidentally sent out, and well, I, I didn't accidentally send the newsletter. I sent the newsletter exactly how I had hoped I would send it. But I had a mistake, and mistakes are, it is what it is, right? I thought all day today that today was the 10th of February. Newsflash, it's actually only the 9th. So today is not the deadline to get your submissions in for um, proposals for the conference. On June 22nd and 23rd, the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference is coming back for the fourth year. Um, That blows my mind that we're four years old in the conference. And so... The proposals are open until tomorrow. Um, The conference is virtual this year. We are trying to do virtual one year, in-person the next. We want to include the global um, educators. We don't want to give them and we don't want to have them to have to travel. So we want everybody to be able to come to this. We decrease the price by $100. It is only $169 for two full days uh, with three keynote speakers, um, uh, Dr. Ricky Gibbs, Dr. Lori Desitels and uh, the trauma-informed nurse, if you don't know her, Robin Kogan, she is going to bring it home at the very last day, not to mention over 20 um, sessions put on by practitioners. Um, So if you're one of those practitioners like, hey, I want to present, I call this the scrappy little trauma-informed conference. So it is not fancy. Uh, We come, we come to connect, we come to learn, we come to um, and collaborate. We do have something called home groups. So uh, twice a day on those two days, you'll be joined in the same group of people in processing. So not only are you going to get all the knowledge, you're going to get a network of people that you stay connected to. I can tell you, I know for a fact in 2019, when we launched the conference, we did home groups and people are still connected. Um, because when we had it in person last year, I had requests. Can we have this home group host? Because we had them the first year and we adored them. So Please, please, please um, register for the conference. Um, $169 up until March 1st, then it only goes to $199. Um, and if you got a proposal, get that in before tomorrow. And then lastly, sorry, Dr. Mona, I've got a lot of Oh, no, I'm enjoying sorry, hearing sorry. all these offerings. So great. Announcements. <laughs> the last one is um, you've probably heard this on every episode, the last several, but I hope that you consider joining me and many others 
at the sixth annual Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools from February 19th to the 25th um, in Houston, Texas. It is, we, uh, Trauma-Informed Educators Network is partnering with the Attachment Trauma Network. We are friends. We do, a, we do conferences. We support each other. I present there. They presented ours. That's what, this is what this work is about. It's not competition, right? It's us building a movement. Um, this is what they told me to say, and I love saying it. The best and the brightest of this movement will be there. Guess who's going to be there? This this guy. So we know that's not always the case. But nonetheless, Dr. Desatels will be uh, the opening keto. Jim Spore Leader will be there. We call him the godfather of trauma-informed schools. Um, Joe Brummer, Melissa Saden, James Moffitt, so many more. Um, and registration is still open. Please get your registration in. It is, uh, if you need to get that in, it is at www.attachmenttraumanetwork.org backslash conference. You all, it's going to be, it is an unofficial family reunion. Um, it, I am so excited. Some schools that I've been supporting, some districts I've been supporting, they're all going to be there. All of the people that I adore and love, many whom have which been on this podcast will be there. Dr. Mona, you might as well come and hang out with us because it's going to be a, it's going to be I a ride. I want you now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to the ATN. Maybe we can get you on the docket <laughs> next year because you need to be a part. But nonetheless, um, this is episode 79, and you have heard her voice, but I want you to know that Dr. Mona Delahook, um, she did tell me to call her Mona, and I have a hard time doing that when somebody works so hard to get um, that doctorate um, degree. I, 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 I can't do it. But anyway, she's a best-selling author and a child psychologist who aims to reduce suffering and increase resilience for children and families. Her paradigm-shifting model offers a new way of understanding emotional and behavioral challenges Incorporating the latest neuroscience and resilience research, Dr. Delahook is challenging the education system to update its practices from focusing on behavior and promoting relational safety. Whew, that is like, that almost is a mission statement to me, isn't it, Dr. Mona Delahook? <laughs> I think it could be. I think it could be a mission statement. Um, yeah, it, it packs a punch, focusing moving from focusing on behaviors to relational safety. You know, I think it, it needs to be a t-shirt and I think I'm yeah. going to be the one to make it because that just, that sums it up. Right. I mean, that I does, that does sum the work up, but before we get, tell us more about you. I, I didn't talk about your books. I didn't talk. I, I wanted to leave all of that for you just as your introductions and we won't dive deep into the book. We're going to talk about a lot of things, but yeah, tell them a little I bit more about you and your work. Hot topics, but, um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a psychologist, a child psychologist. I have I'm not an educator. So I've I've kind of uh, grown up um, over the past three decades or so, sitting alongside parents. Um, in one of my roles is in private practice was just having um, clients and families that I followed their child with, and oftentimes we were all interfacing with schools in IEPs, and class meetings, and you know, principal's office meetings and 504 plans, just all sorts of different things. Um, and I'm just a very, I'm just so grateful for teachers and I'm so grateful for the work that teachers do. And I fully believe that the intentions are to help children. Um, so I, on, on that end, uh, that's a, that's for sure. Now in my, in my work, what I noticed over about a decade um, after I studied, I went in and, and I and I got a uh, specialization in infant and toddler development, which is where I learned actually about brain development and brain science, basic brain science. Not, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a brain scientist, but I learned about it, and I met certain people like Dr. Stephen Porges who was studying way back when I was learning it, he was studying something called the autonomic nervous system, you know, our nervous system. And oh my gosh, my best friend, who is also a psychologist, uh, had twins and one of them had an aut autonomic issue. And so he helped um, her and, and I think about the powerful impact of our bodies on our emotions, our sensations and our behaviors. And that lens, once you learn that lens, 
you can't un unsee behaviors. So I'll never forget, like there was a tipping point if you want a tiny story on this, but you've probably heard it. Maybe I mentioned it last time, but the tipping point was this amazing autistic student. I, I knew him well. I worked with his worked with him at home. I knew him and, um, but he's having a terrible behavior problems at school. And so I was sitting in the back of the room, kind of like um, a fly in the wall because I didn't want him to see me there. And I, and what was happening was that the behavior plan was, um, when he start what he was do what i noticed when i when i observed him was that he was rocking the teacher was giving um reading a story he was kind of rocking his chair and then he started tapping his aid he had a one-on-one aid tapping his aid trying to get her attention but she wanted him to listen to the story so she ignored him and then he started tapping harder and harder and then um the harder he tapped which i saw as a stress response because he really needed something the further away she moved her chair. So, and again, this is from a great IEP plan, a behavior plan that that was, when I say great, I mean, it was well-intentioned mm -hmm. because they thought that the behavior was being maintained by the adults next to the child. Mm -hmm. Long story short, he he started to grab her shoulder. So she moved her chair behind him so she, he couldn't see her. That caused him to twist his body in a, such a way so that he could make visual contact mm -hmm. um, that he fell over and um, on his chair, the kids started laughing. The teacher was, was uh, upset and sent him to the calm down room in the back of the room, which is really a, um, a padded closet mm -hmm. with a window. Mm -hmm. And the aide went in with him, you know, but she was instructed by the IEP to not converse with him to just let him sit there and try to regulate. And three within three minutes, he was hitting his head on the padded wall. And at that moment, I realized that the, the training that I had as a psychologist, but also the, the, the training that every well-intentioned adult in that room had was viewing behaviors as the everything was into behavior management. And if you understand anything about neuroscience, you know that the one word that describes humans the best is complexity. Mm -hmm. Complexity. Behaviors are just, behaviors are the signal. They're just the signal of this underlying need or needs. And that's when I decided um, to write a book called Beyond Behaviors. And I compiled his story, Mateo's story, and oh, oh you have it. Oh, wow. Oh, thank you. There are probably 30 stories in there. Mm -hmm. And it resonated. I'm very grateful. It resonated with teachers and parents. And, and that led to um, kind of my, um, you know, trainings and stuff and meeting people like you mm -hmm. and Dr. Lori uh, and 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 just talking about this whole shift in how we view our humans. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, if you do not have Beyond Behaviors and you're an educator, like literally pause. I'll give you like five second pause. Go to Amazon. Go ahead and order it. Um, you all, it's life changing. I before I pre-ordered the book before it, it, it came out. And um, at the time I was an active principal. And it's I, I mean, and I'm in this work and there's still that's the power of this work, especially. Uh, Mona, when you're talking from a different perspective, sometimes that lens has to shift. It's got to be somebody outside to go, hey, have you thought about this, right? And uh, all of those stories and a lot of the practices that you share um, resonated deeply with me, right? And and I, I think to go off the story you just told, that story happens, that scenario happens every day in classrooms and most schools throughout the country, often. I mean, if not every day. And I think even going back to what we call the behavior plan, the functional behavior assessment, right? The FBA. And and, yeah. and I know it well. I've said in more meetings on FBAs that I would ever love to have to admit to. And it was, what is the function? Okay, are they seeking attention? Are they yeah. avoiding work? Are they, I mean, we've heard it, right? And yeah. it was interesting. And, and I'll share this very quick story. I remember... Um, we had a behavior analyst in the building 
um, they they knew I wasn't a big fan of behavior analysts, not of them as humans, but of the practice. Yes. Um, I loved many of them as humans, but yeah. I just, I knew the practice wasn't what was best. Hmm. But there was a child um, struggling. And matter of fact, I have a picture of this and I'm not showing it by any means, but um, hmm. the child was re- dysregulated and the adult was co-regulating and was down next to the child. Hmm. They had a great relationship, but this child was just struggling. And so I said, I want you to observe. I'm going to go back. I just want you to observe. And, and to the to the analyst, I said, I just want you to watch this. So she watched and the child went, the teacher got her back and she escalated again and she ended up out of the room and this went on a couple of times. And I said, so what do you think? What, what do you think is going on? She's avoiding. I said, so let me add one more thing. Let me add one layer. She found out last night that they were getting kicked out of the hotel and she knows when she leaves school, she has nowhere to go. Does that change the factor, right? And she said, yes, of course. But see, when we're only looking at that, and we don't have to know what kids are going through. We don't, Right. that's not the point, right? The function of a behavior is a dysregulated system or a child trying to find their place in space wherever they are and not being able to regulate that. And when you have an adult that isn't co-regulating, that's simply just an, an, an intensity of the escalation. I mean, ultimately, right? I mean, isn't that how kind of the brain and those neuro are the the mere neurons and, and our autonomic nervous system works? It feeds off of each other, right? A million percent. What you said is just so eloquent. Like, yes, that as humans, when you're in that state, when you're in that dysregulated state, the what what you need what you crave even if you don't know it is somebody to see you and to help you um and that's what you saw in that beautiful example of a teacher and i know that's the kind of principal you were and that's the kind of person you are is that many teachers and and educators naturally through through how they are understand the power of co-regulation and you don't have to know anything about science to understand that we can choose to see a human who's moving their bodies in very agitated ways or not doing what we say or being non-compliant or trying to run away you can view that human as purposefully trying to get avoid something or get something or you can view that human as in distress and not con- fully in control of their own regulation. That's called self-regulation, which is built over time. And you don't have to know really anything about brain science to s- shift the lens to believing that these are not just SR, stimulus response. You have a stimulus and then you have a human being in the middle mm-hmm. and then you have a response. Right. But John Watson and, um, you know, the the early behaviorist uh, Skinner, B.F. Skinner, mm-hmm. to them, the elegance of behaviorism was that it didn't matter what was inside. It didn't matter what, the internal life of the child. That's why they thought it was so amazing, because you didn't have to know that. Mm-hmm. You could alter behaviors. And yeah, they did alter behaviors. But we now know that the way that some behaviors get altered is that is through fear or through, you know, other shutdown. And it just has such a stranglehold, Matthew, on our, on our, on our education system. And I don't know why it's holding on so tightly. You know, I mean, that is exactly, that is a great description, a stranglehold. That's it. And matter of fact, um, you know, as we talk about the impact of COVID and we don't even know, we don't even, we're, I mean, people like we're feeling the impact of COVID. I agree. But this is a generation that is going to be impacted by COVID, right? All of all of us have been impacted. But I think about how I'm hearing, and, and if you're an educator and, and you're listening live, please put in the comments what you hear because I'm hearing it. It's worse than it's ever been. Kids are more escalated than they've ever been. Um you know, schools are struggling harder than more than they've ever struggled. And I agree. But I also say that's because we're trying to do the same thing we've always done. 
And it goes to what you just said, Dr. Mona, of, I mean, Skinner and all of these that we learned about in school. I, yeah. That was my child psychology. That's what it was based yeah. in. Yes. We have to look at this holistically and not just the kids. We also have to look at it at the adult mm -hmm. and we then have to step back and look at districts and we have to step back and look at systems because at the end of the day, it's all impacting the kids. And that's, it, it's no, it's not separate. Kids are not separate from their teachers. Teachers are not separate from the principals. Mm -hmm. Principals are not separate from the district. And so I, I would love to hear from you kind of your take on this because I see it. And, and, and how do we utilize this opportunity? Because I do believe, I truly in my heart believe we're in the midst of an opportunity right now. Yeah. To have these conversations in a lot of spaces and places because people are at their wits end. Right. They're they're We, we got to do something different or it isn't going to last. The system is going to fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're going to and we're going to have fewer and fewer graduation rates. And the impact of not shifting our ways is mm -hmm. going to show up and it's not going to be pretty. Um and and I know that some people want to just not talk about the pandemic and just and, and just be let's just have life and let's go back to how things were. I get that. But we are suffering still. Parents are suffering still. Teachers are suffering still. Families. It, it, it was almost three years long and it's still in some way going on. It's it's the elephant in the room. It's it's real. And the stress of the pandemic, I talk about one of the things I talk about um, in the brain body parenting is something called a body budget, which is um, Lisa Feldman Barrett's term for something called allostasis, which is basically how the systems of our physical bodies and brains stay in balance, keep us upright, you know, and it's, it's like this principle that is completely non-controversial and our body budgets took such a big hit during the pandemic. The reason we're seeing so many emotional and behavioral difficulties right now is that those body budgets are still low. And you add another, another factor, which is something you alluded to, human to human contact. We know that emotions are contagious. We know that the human state of our nervous system is picked up by the other people in the room. And again, I have so much compassion for teachers. My heart, I, I don't know how y'all could have been a teacher. I could have never had 30 kids in a classroom. I, I like having one family in a room at a time, but to have all these nervous systems that you're trying to stay calm for is very tough. So we have to look at ourselves. We have to ask, where is my body budget? What is your district, your school doing to help ensure that you can stay um, calm in your mind and in your body and even have some space? It's not really about self-care. This is about survival. It is. This is about your nervous system. This is about your immune system, your inflammatory markers. It's really serious stuff. And the way especially for kids with trauma histories, but all kids, but students with trauma histories need an extra amount of co-regulation because that's what was missing in their childhood. That's what developmental trauma is, is to suffer alone. These kids suffered alone so that their circuits for self-regulation are not built in a way that children who haven't experienced trauma are built. And so you could have a middle schooler who looks, you know, who's very bright and who looks like they're in control all the time. And then they might hear something or something, you know, maybe they open their string cheese wrong and all of a sudden they're clearing the desk of the person next to them because their structure just breaks. And it's not a purposeful misbehavior and it's not someone trying to get out of something. It's not someone trying to get out of doing the next worksheet. This is a human being who's suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think uh, to go back to something you said earlier, because it's really powerful. 
is in no way, and I say this all the time, no way, and I've never met an educator who I asked, what you know, what is your intent? Um, my intent is to mess kids up. I mean, that's what I want to do, right? I've never met one. Um, and I never, I never want that perception to come across anything that is, that is said. But I also share this, Dr. Mona, because I think it's important. That was never my intent either as an educator, as a principal, anyone. But that was the outcome that I was getting when I was trying to do the practices that I was taught to do is yeah. I was actually harming children psychologically. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think some of this, that's hard for educators to grapple with. And there is a process of grief, right, yeah. that we have to go through to say, but if that if I did that and that could potentially have been harmful then I have to cope with that. I have to figure out how to navigate that, right? Because yeah. most of our kids, we don't see. We, I was very fortunate as a teacher. I got, to, I got to reconnect to a lot of my students. As a principal, literally I lost 75 kids a year and they went to different schools. And some of them I still see and some of them I don't. But I had to grapple with that. And I want to encourage educators out there to know it's okay you yes. did the best you could with the information yeah. you had. Mm. And when you, in the words of Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. Yes. And now that we have a new body of science, I want educators to be unapologetically sharing it, right? Yeah. Did you know this? Hey, go yeah. tell your friends to buy this book and, <laughs> and all the other ones that have been on here. Dr. Odessa tells us is going to be on here next week, right? Yeah. That's what it's about. It's about shifting paradigms and not holding grief and guilt, but but freeing that from yourself and helping others understand that what we've done Ugh. is not in the best interest of our kids. What are your thoughts? I love that. I, I'm just honoring what you just said because I am not, I am in that, and you're same boat. Um, and I, I just had a flashback as you were talking of a time when I was in there trying to help a kid and I had a meltdown. I took him outside. Oh, took him outside. And I was like, please, come on, just get with it. This is when I was in the old paradigm of like, I did, I did the behavior chart. I did the tracking system. I, I, I went and bought these special stickers. I mean, I did everything. And, um, and, and I lost it. I'm like, give me a break. I lost it. I had a meltdown. And you know what? We need to have compassion for that. I looked at, I looked over when I did that, it was like right outside and I immediately felt full of shame and blame. And I looked out and the, the aide was kind of looking like, you know, the kid's impossible. So mm -hmm. it's not you. And then I realized, okay, this is a systemic thing. Like we are actually seeing this kid as a bad kid. I just lost it as the adult in the room because I believed he wasn't trying hard enough. So I just want you to, to know if you are like what, what Matthew just said, this is going to be a grieving process for many of us. And I'm going to say that I'm seeing this on the parenting side too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's just say my children are adults. Now I threw my kids in timeout because I was taught that that, that was the sine qua non of, of, you know, behavior management. So we have to, to just live with the fact that the paradigm is shifting and we have more and new information now about what it means to see a human who's supposedly having a bad behavior. And uh, it starts with self-compassion. It starts with compassion for ourselves because guess what? It's probably not how you were raised. It's probably not what your pediatrician, if you're a parent, it's probably not what everyone at, at, at your ch children's school is saying. Like I have therapists in my community who are parents and their kids are getting behavioral um, consequences for having meltdowns, mm -hmm. which are stress responses. Mm -hmm. And they don't know what to do because the school's saying they're, they're hovering or helicoptering. And it's just, it's, it's, we're in a paradigm shift. It hasn't shifted yet. And I think you're you're so right. And i i had words I had words uh, said to me 
um, right before I left the principalship that that just they still sting. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be honest. I had to say I can't have a conversation right now. I have mm-hmm. to go close my door and I have to take some moments because um, we had a child that had a major extreme um, escalation to the point where hyperventilation, we actually thought there was uh, there was a medical issue anyway. And I was told in that moment that I was coddling children. Um, and man, I had to pause and I had to keep myself in check, Dr. Mona, because my what I refer to as my 23 year old self that didn't know anything about stress and trauma and just was very reactive and would say whatever came. Um, I had to keep that 23-year-old in check for a minute because I had a lot of thoughts and, and things coming through my head. Yeah. But that is the mindset. There's still this idea of pull yourself up by your bo- bootstraps. And our neuro and, and our non-neurotypical kids are being held to neurotypical expectations. And mm. it's creating a lot of trauma for kids. Um, I talk about it on this podcast all the time. For some reason, we want to always talk about the trauma that happens outside of schools, but we don't really ever want to really talk about what's happening in our house, which is what's happening in schools. And and we have to have that conversation. I also want to say one other thing is I am by no means a perfect parent and I by no means um, was a perfect principal, even when I knew this. But here's the key, I think, is there is it's there's rupture and repair. It occurs. <laughs> and and I le- I hold this and I know I've shown this so many times, probably not on the podcast, but when I speak, I keep it with me because it's a constant reminder of we make mistakes, but kids are also very forgiving. And so humans are forgiving for the most part. And yes. I, this young lady uh, was a student in my school and she came in and she was dysregulated. Something happened. She reacted. I thought she was going after a kid to hit him in the lobby. There were parents. I yelled. And I immediately saw shut down, almost disassociation, like major response. Yeah. And I knew exactly in the moment I was in the wrong. Um, mm-hmm. When I found out what happened, she wasn't even going after the kid. It was just a, it, the whole thing was misunderstanding, but my reaction was inappropriate and shouldn't have been done. Mm-hmm. So I asked her, um, I said, hey, come here. And I, I said her name, I won't say her name out loud, but um, I said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And she said, yeah. I said, I have to tell you, I'm really sorry. Oh. I shouldn't have done that. I reacted in a way that I shouldn't have. And I'm sorry if that scared you. Um, but And I apologize. And I said, uh, you know, will you accept my apology? Mm. You know what? Good on good on her, Dr. Mona. This is what she said. I'll think about it. <laughs> I was like, you, that? Yes. I was like, I've heard that from my wife before. But okay. <laughs> I gave her space and I respected that, right? Like, yes. we, we, we can teach kids it's okay to say, I can't right now, but let me think about it, right? Yes. And so yes. I gave her a couple hours because she wasn't happy with me either. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, did you um, did you think about it? And she said, yes, I left you a note in your mailbox. Oh. And in the mailbox, it says, I accept your apology, Mr. Portel. And then she signed it. And I actually dated it. I have held on to this. Let me see. Since 2018. Oh. I've had this five years. Okay. That's so gorgeous. Um, and it's all wadded up because I keep it in my journal. Um, mm-hmm. And when I'm having a rough time, a rough day, I go back and I look at her forgiveness of me. And I try to have that same for myself because oh. that to me, right, this is the work. It's not being perfect all the time. It's not being you have to stay regulated. It's when you mess mm-hmm. up, when there's rupture, repair. Just repair it. That's we're human. Their kids are human. We're human. It's the best possible possible modeling for being human. And guess what? We have to expect that we're going to mess up. We will mess up. We are human. We have nervous systems that sometimes are going to protect us by messing up. But when you have the repair, you have the most powerful tool in your toolbox. It's so powerful. Um, and you know, I just, just that story is so beautiful and it took something in you to be able to pull that out because that takes being vulnerable. And I'm really curious, like what gave you that, this ability to be, to step away from that authoritarian Mm viewpoint to be like, I'm going to be human with you and I'm going to apologize to you as I would 
to a friend. So I should probably have you bill me for this because I think we're about to go into a session. <laughs> but I will tell you really honestly what it was is mm. as a kid, I was never apologized to when adults mm. at school, especially yeah. when harm was done. I was never validated, seen, heard or apologized to. I came and there's still an era of this that occurs. The children are to be seen and not heard. There's a dehumanization of kids. Um, matter of fact, I have another podcast that I do with uh, Pace's Connection called History, Culture, and Trauma. It's actually History, Culture, Trauma. Um, and we had we had one episode on the historical context of the dehumanization of children um, and when, in which I learned that there were actually laws against the treatment of animals before there were laws against the treatment of children, right? And so we have to get out of this mindset that kids are not little human beings with emotions and nervous systems and brains that are developing. So often I see escalations happening when um, children can't ha handle the, aesthetic, the uh, aesthetic load that they're being asked to do because those expectations are more adult expectations than kids, whether that's sit, sit quietly for long periods of time in really <laughs> uncomfortable chairs. I can't do that now. I, I can't. At principals meetings, I used to have to take fidgets and I would get up and move to the back of the room. And but it was OK for me because I'm an adult. That should be OK for kids, too, when we start teaching them, hey, if your body feels this way, get up and move around. Um, one of the practices that we did at Fall Hamilton was we moved to almost well all possible flexible seating school. -wide. Uh, it's how we used wow. our covid funds. Ah, that's so cool. Because kids need to bounce. They need to roll. They need yes. to wobble. It's okay. They it's okay. need it. And it's regulating for kids and for adults. Well, thank you for sharing that. Because I think that that's just so powerful. That your history of never being repaired with, that's the proper English, at school gave you this beautiful sensibility of what what our vulnerable humans need and i think that is that is just it it is it's moving us away from children shall be seen and not heard mm -hmm. spare the rod spoil the child some of those those ideas that are many hundreds of years old which don't mean, do not equate to that adults shouldn't be the leaders and the authoritarian authoritative guides. Of course, we need to be, mm -hmm. but it also doesn't mean that children are walking around like little adults. My God, they thought about they believed that in the early in the in the nineteenth century in the eighteenth century in England, where they really believed that little children they dressed them up in kind of these corsets if they were little girls in these fancy outfits just look at paintings from the, that time they believe that children were little adults and sometimes we still do yeah. i was talking to a mom uh, a mom today and she has a, a little girl who's ha who and and the teacher this kindergarten class um the teacher is noticing that there's a bunch of behavior problems in the in the kindergarten class kindergarten and so the teacher sent home a note with these rules like a, a half a page of class rules and the teacher wanted every parent to read the child the class rules at night and in the morning before they got to school so that they would learn to behave better hmm. so if anyone thinks california is um you know advanced in our education system this was at a school in california and 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 let me just say kindergartners who are having behavior problems are stressed out mm -hmm. they don't need to read the rules in fact they probably know the rules better than anyone else and if they could if they could follow their rules they would as ross green says if they could do well they would mm -hmm. it's just our understanding is so top down is so top down we have to go body up it's not all top down intentional motivated misbehavior or needing to be taught yes and and i mean oh and, and I, I could go so much deeper on us teaching 
uh, kids' proper behavior, especially when we're talking about um, in marginalized communities and children of color. That's a whole different layer of what is right behavior. But I do have to tell you, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Neuro Wild. She uh, creates, uh, she's a non-neurotypical uh, I think she blogs, but she's really active. I on love her media. Facebook page. It's so good. And I good. have to say, I'm going to show this on, if you're listening live, I'm going to describe it if you're on the podcast. Yeah. She just produced a graphic that um, is, uh, mm. it's, it's a teacher standing uh, by a pool with a clipboard. And there is a child with their hands out of the water, flapping them. And it says, student would not comply with instructions to swim. And her whole, she went through a whole dialogue of, it's the same. And she even quoted what you just said, Dr. Ross Green, who's been on here on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Children do well if they can. You know, that is, that to me was just so powerful. We're asking children to behave when they don't have the skill in that moment. They might possess the skill when they're regulated when their nervous system is calm, when the when the teacher is calm. They may have it, but in that moment, they're unable to access that. And we have to continue to see that it's not rule-breaking. It's being dysregulated, right? And it's it's yes. a it's a nervous system that is that is completely in that and I'm just trying to figure out where I'm safe and how I fit into this space that and is world. Right. And it's subconscious, meaning it's not motivated. It's not intentional. And I think what you bring, I love that graphic, by the way, I just love it because here's the child flapping around in the water. Think about that as, you know, you're saying self-regulate, but the child doesn't know how to swim Mm -mm. because guess what? Here's a myth that we have to bust just because a child can control themselves and their behavior. Some of the time Mm. doesn't mean they can do it all the time. Our nervous system fluctuates in real time throughout the day. Adults do too. But if you add the loading of a child who has very um, immature self-regulation due to secondary to trauma or to toxic stress or to just being in a world that isn't safe for them, that self-regulation is not, it's not like a pull-down menu and a teacher says self-regulate or remember the rules like this, the kindergarten teacher, here are the rules. Um, it doesn't work that way. It's not a pull-down menu. We're, we're human to human bodies and brains that are soaking in each other's state. Mm-hmm. And compassion and seeing someone and and just letting them know they're not alone in that what I call the red pathway when they're in the fight or flight Mm -hmm. is powerful. But yet many educators feel, I shouldn't say educators, many people Mm -hmm. feel that that is somehow rewarding a bad behavior. And, you know, I have to say too, what you said is this goes multiple ways. I knew as a principal when I was dysregulated, when I was overwhelmed, when I was super stressed, when it just, it was too much that impacted the teachers. And I knew it. Because I could start seeing this wave of uh, feeling. I could feel it. Like I was impacting. To the point, I actually had the community mental health provider come and talk to me like, you're not okay. And this is what, and, and that took that took a lot of vulnerability on her part. And I was very, she was right. And I couldn't deny it. Um, and it goes the same. The teachers on the impact of the kids. And so many people want to talk about the kids' impact on the teacher. And yes, that exists too, right? Yeah. But we have to see how we all are interconnected in this work and how we have to have each other's back. Somebody put it up there, uh, put it in the comment earlier where they said portellism. And that is right because all I talk about is I honestly Mm -hmm. kind of want to throw self-care out the window at this point in education right now because you can't self-care your way out of this situation. This is a collective care Mm -hmm. I have to know that my teammate and I have our backs and we're going to dysregulate and I know I can call on somebody and somebody can come and we have to get, I, I have to know my administrator is going to have my back and I have to know as, a, a teach, as an administrator, the teachers are going to have my back. There's going to be times I have to step out, right? Yeah. We have to get to this point where we can have these open and honest conversations because if not, we're going to just continue to perpetuate 
what we know is not working. We're going to continue to try because we're going to say, maybe we're not doing it well enough. Oh, yeah. Maybe we got to do it better. Mm. Maybe we have to be more consistent. Let's just crack down harder, folks. We can do this. And please, with so much compassion, when something isn't working, it doesn't mean that we dig in the trenches. It means we can, we need to reflect and be curious. And people like um, Portel is, Matthew Portel is saying, you know what, guess what? We don't have to go to the same well. There's another well here. We can drink from it together. We can support each other. It's hard. Humans don't like change. I know you went to school learning behavioral techniques. I know that it was ingrained and I know that it still is. But we together, we can support each other for the sake of our children. I wouldn't be speaking out if I hadn't seen just in my own private life, hundreds and hundreds of children who are harmed within the systems, in the social, in the social um, juvenile justice system and in the schools, because they have not been treated well. And all you have to do is look at the neurodiversity movement and the voices of autistic adults who went through things and others mm -hmm. to know that this isn't just a small deal. This is a huge deal. And it's called iatrogenesis in medicine. You're not supposed to do something that could potentially hurt someone. And that's how bad it's getting, my friends, mm -hmm. because we have students who get languish to start to languish in in juvenile hall because they have been put through the ringer on their behaviors when what they really needed was trauma responsive relationships. Hmm. And and I think that is so true. And I think a lot of us um, in education, right, is we're seeing that there is a digression happening in a lot of states where the policies of districts are becoming more exclusionary, more um, more uh, punish driven. Right. We've got to punish harder. We've got to. Yeah. And we need to be cognizant of that. There's actually political yeah. um, there's political. Uh, fight now uh, around even using some of the terminology that we use because now it's been associated with uh, critical race theory and that includes SEL, trauma-informed, equity. All those words are now being politicized. So we have to know that this is hard, but it's doable. And it's doable when you stay connected to people who do it, get it, believe in it, fail at it sometimes and come back and try it again which is why we continue. This is why I continue this podcast. It's why I continue mm -hmm. to run the network. It's why we're starting the, the global gathering. Um, because we know as practitioners, we know this is the way we know this is going to make a major impact on kids, all kids, not just the kids with trauma, not just the kids, um, who are struggling, all kids, all kids. I mentioned this earlier, uh, Dr. Mona, and I want to mention it now, and then I'm going to make sure that everybody knows how to get how to reach mm -hmm. out to you if they want or make sure they uh, it's the, know your books and um, all that but if you're not part of ctip the campaign for trauma-informed policy and practice mm -hmm. please join um go on there on their website and join jen was on here um a couple weeks ago mm -hmm. they were able to talk to all about um all about the the funding that has come down from the federal government so please you can impact this movement yeah somebody put in the chat hashtag disruptors unite that's exactly right we can <laughs> impact this movement and we can impact policy um we just have to make sure we're staying uh focused organized be able to admit our mistakes and be able to talk about our successes um, because yeah. by no means have we got it all figured out but we sure have mm -hmm. a lot figured out so dr mona Man, that went, you're going to have to come back because that was like the wow. fastest 45 minutes. As a matter of fact, I think it was only 15 that looked, felt like, it was 45 that felt like 15. Yeah, it did. We'll, <sighs> we, we just, we, we could go on and on and we will, we will continue. Yeah. Talk about new things. I, you know, yeah, it's, ah, oh, wow. Thank you. It's, well, and thank I you for coming. Hope. I hope people have hope because you are speaking the truth from 
I can tell you that it's not just that you've seen it and I've seen it in those hundreds of children that we have personally witnessed the neuroscience of safety working for. Um, it is the basics of brain development. We found out in the 1990s and there's no reason we can't export it into education with compassion, with self-compassion and know that we're not, we don't have all the answers, but we certainly do know that relational safety heals trauma, it builds resilience, our children's mental health and physical health will be better. We could save millions and billions of dollars later on down the road for these individuals who be, have healthier bodies because we saw them. So let's do it together. Uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And you all, if you don't have Beyond Behaviors, uh, please get it. Uh, Dr. Mona also has a new a newer book called uh, Brain, Body, Parenting. Um, it's not just for parents, though. It really is applicable mm -hmm. to anyone who has children, <laughs> works with children. Um, so please get those. How else can they follow you if they want to follow you on social media? Oh. Where can they find you? Oh, sure. You can find me over at Facebook, um, Dr. Mona Delahook. Instagram, I think is the same, Dr. Mona Delahook, and um, my website, monadelahook.com. It's a, not a name that anyone else in the world has, so... <laughs> Just Google her. Google Mona D and you might find it. <laughs> exactly. And that, that is a nice advantage though, right? Between oh, you, yeah. Dr. Desatels, there's not many portals floating around either. So yeah, hey, that's good. Right. I like good. Good. Yeah. We're, easy, we're easy to find and we're also disruptors. So <laughs> Absolutely. And um here's here I, I I put this out today and I really I really believe it. I'm unapologetically disrupting with a message of hope. Mm. now how that that that's what we're doing we're unapologetically yeah. disrupting with a message of hope because there is hope you yeah. all and we know it we see it we've seen the fruits of the labor we've seen schools do it we've seen individuals do it we've seen districts do it um maybe one day we can see a country that heals through understanding how all of this science works so thank you all so very much for being a part of the conversation and, and for, for just being, always being here, right? It's just so awesome that we have continual listeners um, of the podcast. So as always, um, please, please, please go into the world and do something absolutely freaking awesome.